Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we try to bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and I'm joined as always by Dr. Austin Baraki. This is episode number 54. We have a very special guest today, Dr. Carl Nadolsky. Dr. Nadolsky is a board-certified clinical endocrinologist, and today we're talking about hormones. Make sure you check the timestamps if you want to check out a particular topic. And without further ado, let's get into this week's podcast. Uh, hey, this is Dr. Carl Nadelsky. I'm a board-certified endocrinologist and a diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. I did my undergraduate training at Michigan State University, went to medical school at Nova Southeastern, uh, did my internal medicine residency at Portsmouth Naval Medical Center, and my endocrine fellowship at uh, Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Uh, you were in Portsmouth too. I was. I was. I was there first. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think both jo- both Jordan and I rotated there as medical students, didn't we? Yeah, I did my emergency medicine. So I did my emergency medicine rotation there. That had to be two thousand fifteen, and I did a psych rotation there two thousand. 14. Yeah, we were, let's see. So I, <clears throat> I graduated residency in 2011. I was there as staff for two years and then uh, started fellowship in 2013. So I was up at Walter Reed when you guys were there. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause when I got there, they were like, oh, you're the most Jack doctor here. And so they, that must've been after <laughs> you left then. Because- <laughs> 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 if you had if you had been there previous you know at the time they'd be like look there's this guy you have to meet he just put <laughs> about yourself. I'm, I'm surprised people didn't somehow uh almost assume we knew each other well right yeah, we, we don't all know each other yeah well the other the weird thing about working there is so i i've had a beard you know now since puberty mm. and uh so in the military setting right that you know if oh yeah they either assume that you're a civilian or an operator that's right yeah. And so yeah, yeah. Uh, in my case, because they were like, oh, my gosh, dude, you're a doctor. What are you, are you like a, you know, a SEAL doctor or something? Or like <laughs> a I was like, no, 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 no. I am just a civilian. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. So today we just had some some questions on like uh, like I talked to you about on the phone, um, kind of about your contributions to the AACE obesity guidelines. And then we really wanted to kind of take advantage of your endocrinology training uh, and get your opinion on some really hot topics in, in strength conditioning world. So let's let's start out with this obesity deal here. So you're, you're one of the authors, and I didn't know this prior to kind of just double checking, uh, but you're one of the authors of the latest AACE guidelines on obesity, uh, which I've linked in the show notes. What uh, exactly was your role in this project? So the way, I mean, every, you know, all societies do guidelines slightly differently. Um, but you get a, you know, a writing committee together. Um, you come up with what the, what's requested, what kind of recommendations are requested, what are the major questions that need to be answered. <clears throat> and then you essentially split them up and you have to, you know, do systematic reviews and, and do the best you can of writing each section. Um, and then, you know, and then y'all review each other's stuff and make sure you're coming up with consensus recommendations. And then, and then you have to pass it on to like the bigger scientific, uh, committee that may be within that organization as we did. And then, and then the whole organization has to kind of sign off on it. So <clears throat> the sections that I had specifically for me, I mean, there are, there are some, uh, you know, extra little things in there, but, um, I, I wrote the, um, the anthropometric diagnosis part, 
Um, so, you know, getting into how do we even diagnose obesity, you know, be, between BMI, waist circumference, body composition, uh, you know, clinical stuff, all that. And then, um, and then of course they had me write the exercise part. <laughs> so I, so I wrote the exercise section also. And then, um, and then I contributed a few other, um, cause there were some people who had to fall by the wayside for whatever reason. So, um, some other sections on some of the medication specific, uh, guidances. Gotcha. So I guess the, the next question on that would be what, I guess, was there significant sort of pushback as, as far as like what you were writing about? Because the, and I'll just be the first to say these guidelines, if you're not familiar with them, like stop the podcast, go <laughs> read them. These are probably the, the most thorough, like well-researched, well-supported uh, evidence-based guidelines we have on like, ob- like identifying, you know, who's at risk for morbidity and mortality secondary to increased, you know, adiposity and management of obesity just in general. So if you haven't read this stuff, you should do it. Uh, and so this was an updated article. Like, was there any pushback that you got from what you wrote about the anthropometric stuff, you know, about getting a BMI on your patients, getting waist circumference in certain, uh, you know, situations where you needed like more information, et cetera. So were you getting a lot of pushback? Yeah, not a, not a lot of pushback because there's pretty decent consensus on the basic concepts there, there was, um, but there always ends up being debate, especially as it kind of went through the filter of what I explained with, with other people's opinions who aren't necessarily on the writing committee, um, how much emphasis to put on BMI, which you can just look on the internet and people like to argue about that because it's population based stuff versus an individual. Um, so, so a lot of it, uh, we tried to come up with semantics on how to say, well, uh, so if you look at the algorithm, which is actually the easiest way to look at this thing, because <clears throat> it is a pretty thorough <laughs> guideline, it's almost too much. But, um, you know, we talk about, you know, we use BMI to help screen, but then we use our clinical exam to um, to really confirm that the BMI reflects the excess adiposity. And then we can use a waist circumference to help refine that a little bit, uh, especially for cardiometabolic risk. But there was, there, there was more debate probably on the waist circumference and, and, and how we wanted to, you know, recommend using that to either rule in, rule out, and then what, what numbers we wanted to use because the data are so vast um, and with different ethnicities. So, you know, we talk about um, different thresholds for ethnic cutoffs. Um, but then we still, you know, talk about, well, Hey, remember there are, um, you have to consider even those with sarcopenic obesity. Um, and that's where things like white waist circumference can help, but then, you know, but even that's not perfect. So nothing's perfect. Um, and then actually not in, in this guideline, but then there was just a kind of a statement, uh, almost a philosophical statement, the next, like a year or two, maybe, I guess it was the next year, uh, where ACE and I wasn't as involved in this, but the adiposity based chronic disease, um, sort of uh, term to be used for, uh, patients with essentially what is obesity related complications without calling it obesity kind of thing. But, um, there's still, you know, room to discuss that sort of thing. Right. Right. And so, it, you know, the most interesting thing when, because we, we actually give a, a part of our seminar or lecture uh, component is on obesity. And I talk about screening and kind of take a deep dive in here for people who are in the uh, exercise uh, or in strength conditioning fields. And when I was going through initially and like looking at the sensitivity and specificity of BMI, my like initial assumption was that we weren't or we were 
you know, falsely identifying people who are too jacked, you know, um, with the, with BMI. But in fact, the actual opposite relationship is true. You're actually missing people who are not jacked enough and, but are, uh, you know, not necessarily obese, uh, by BMI standards. And so you're missing them. Uh, it's, Super interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, and, and really, so that's why you know BMI, as much as like guys like us don't like it because we end up in the overweight or or, or just hitting on the obese category despite having low body composition, it's really far and few between. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, even if you look uh, in detail into ours, if you have a BMI of thirty five, as far as a diagnosis, like you don't even need a waist circumference or anything else because it's not going to add that much. If, if you have a BMI that high, there's no way it's all muscle. Right. right. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean, yeah, you're not, you're not um, too I mean, jacked. Maybe, maybe the pro bodybuilders on steroids. Sure. But even, even that maybe, you know, so, so most, most guys who are, you know, really jacked and ripped, there's well, usually going to be in the overweight BMI, but then a clinical exam would tell you, oh, that's not even true. Right. And so their waist circumference. no body fat. Right. Exactly. Right. The waist circumference would help you refine that. So, uh, so Carl, we've, we've talked about uh, obesity on a podcast of our own. We had your brother on and we talked to him. Um, we recently had uh, another colleague on as well. So we've, we've kind of talked about this topic uh, a few different times in terms of the pathophysiology, the drivers, how complex it is, looked into you know, biological drivers, psychosocial correlates and, 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 uh, and drivers of obesity. So we don't necessarily want to beat those to death all over again, but given your particular background, um, with respect to endocrinology, uh, we wanted to get kind of a, a, the endocrine angle on that. And so, you know, we get a lot of patients who might come to us with these issues and they're always concerned about their hormones. Um, and I'm sure you get this a lot as well. So, so in, in a patient who's showing up with obesity, uh, what role do hormones play in uh, the, the pathogenesis and in, uh, of obesity and in weight loss as well? So in general, and I, and I try to explain this to patients in ways to get them on board with the program too, um, because it is very frustrating for everyone. And as you guys talked about, the complexities that go into causing dysfunction to that energy balance homeostasis are, are vast themselves, and everyone's different. So um, most of the hormones that people think of, like the common hormones, like thyroid and cortisol and all these things, they are generally not really involved that much. I mean, they're involved, don't get me wrong, but not pathologically usually. Like even hypothyroidism does not generally cause marked obesity, although it's certainly not going to help anyone's cause and pretty much everyone's going to get screened for that. Um, most of the hormones that you think of, uh, like, like that and, and, cortisol specifically and some other ones, even like hypogonadism, there's going to be more of a clinical indication to look for those usually. Um, maybe if you get sent to the endocrinologist like us or others who feel comfortable, we may have a low threshold to check just because if they've made it this far, that means someone has a question. So we're, we might do a little bit more uh, screening for Cushing's than we would expect primary care to do just because we feel like, well, you know, it's our responsibility to, to make sure we're looking for it and interpreting that right as opposed to getting incorrect stuff. But, um, but all those things, that whole uh, energy balance homeostasis that we talked about, it is all neuroendocrine control. Um, you know, so it is really a lot of it is controlled by hormones, if nothing else, just by definition, and the system becomes dysfunctional. So, so sometimes when I talk to patients, I, I acknowledge that to them. So, while I don't want them to get the false sense of, oh, it's my hormones doing it, I do want them to know that the biology of that hormone system is dysfunctional and we're going to find ways to really help support them 
in their efforts to change that energy balance and fix the disease. So, and then of course the dysfunction that comes from obesity, all the adiposity-based chronic disease, specifically, you know, insulin resistance and all that stuff, that's all hormone related too. And that's a different um, downstream adverse effect of, of adiposity and that's hormone. So if that makes any sense. Yeah, this kind of ties into a topic that we address in, in, you know, other discussions we have about like, you know, working with patients who have like chronic pain, for example, when it comes to discussion of like the locus of control, right? So if it's, you know, if the patient is given a narrative, like it's all your hormones and it's kind of out of your control and there's nothing you can do, then there can sometimes be some like learned helplessness out of that and, and a, you know, a reluctance or a fear of really engaging in the process to try to address it, even though it is going to be difficult, you know? Right, exactly. So. Do you ever find yourself having to address like in the clinic, like this chicken egg sort of question where it's like, well, are you saying that my hormones are out of whack to use kind of a lay phrase and that's causing my obesity or that my obesity is in fact causing my hormones to be dysregulated? Do you find yourself having that conversation? Kind of, although it's interesting. I'm As you say that, I'm almost surprised that doesn't come up more, but I think it's almost within the discussions I have. So I... I I give them like a 20 second description of why it's complex, starting with their genetics. And then I discuss, you know, I, I mentioned epigenetics. And then I say the diet and exercise that happened over your growth and, and lifetime. And then, you know, and then I get into the microbiome and there may be viruses involved. And, and then there's the food environment. And then, and then, then when obesity happens, you know, when, when that energy balance uh, becomes excessive because of all those factors disrupting it, then it becomes even more dysfunctional. And then, then the obesity is causing it. So, so, so really it's a little both. So if that question came up specifically like that, I would, I would try to fudge it and say it's both <laughs> like a politician, you know, <laughs> yes. um, because I want right. the patients to get the most, um, in, encouragement out of the conversation. Yeah, you're right. I don't want them to just think, oh, well, I'm screwed because it's, because, you know, that's the way it was going to be. Um, I want them to be empowered. And we have studies, you know, even when I talk about genetics, because genetics are a very powerful part of this whole thing that are, that are you know, maybe predicting all of this. But, but we know that most of our interventions, even lifestyle interventions, um, can overcome genetics. Uh, you know, we have a lot of studies on that recently. It seems like just in the past year or two, um, I think I've shared a few so that's that's good news, but you know genetics plays a role, and then then the whole system gets dysfunctional, right? So for the the healthy individual, like who uh, besides obesity, who comes to see you, or or even maybe even primary care if that's their initial. Yeah, I was going to say I don't get. To, yeah, usually I get the referrals are for not usually too healthy of. Yeah, right, 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 right. People aren't just kind of coming in, but I, I get those. Don't get me wrong. Somehow, but sure, yeah. So and maybe maybe your take on in the primary care setting, you know, and otherwise you know, healthy individual, uh, which, you know, might be termed the medically healthy obese, quote unquote, what sort of hormone testing do you think is appropriate for them if they are saying that they are having difficulty losing weight? Well, so again, the, the clinical suspicion of some things would, would matter. So they're probably all going to get a thyroid screen at least very rarely for that type of person. Would we do, um, you know, a Cushing screen, but, but we end up doing it more often than, than others. I'll tell you that. Um, even when I don't have a strong index of suspicion, I just try to do a test that has pretty good, you know, specificity, but, but it has to be done right. There's, there are real nuances with screening for cortisol and it's a pain in the butt, but, um, but almost all of them, I'm going to do a pretty thorough, um, review of systems and, uh, 
and cardiometabolic screening because I want to know their complications. I really, really want to know because I want to stage them. So that's something we, we did in these guidelines that, that we think is more important than just the diagnosis of excess adiposity. We want to know what kind of disease it's causing or what kind of risk of those diseases. So, so I do, you know, I'm always going to get an A1C, uh, a fasting glucose, and I often do a glucose tolerance test, especially if I think they, they might have PCOS or, um, or if they had a history of gestational, which that's recommended for those settings anyways, um, for, for certain reasons. Um, I'm always going to get a, a, a lipid panel, um, LFTs to look for fatty liver things. Um, I'm going to ask them symptoms like uh, potential obesity-associated hypogonadism, PCOS-type stuff, um, arthritis, even depression that might be related to their to their obesity, um, so that we can stage the severity of their obesity. Not necessarily, maybe what your question really was was looking into the etiology. So there really are very few um, hormone tests that we need to look at to look for an etiology. A lot of it's going to come from the history you know, and then, yeah, we'll screen their thyroid, but, um, there's not a lot else really needed statistically. And so just so that our audience knows when you use the term etiology, you mean that, you know, we don't, we're, we're not necessarily going on a hunt to find like one specific hormone that is uh, pathologically wrong. That is the sole driver of the obesity. We're unlikely to find something like that. Yeah. And it sounds, and again, if you've read either these guidelines or the obesity society's guidelines, you know, a lot of this stuff is once you rule somebody in, for either having obesity or obesity related risk factors, you go, you keep going down the line with this review of systems to check for, you know, do they have diabetes or are they at risk for diabetes? Do they have cardio, you know, other cardiometabolic disease? Do they have fatty liver? Do they have depression? Like you, these are all like explicitly recommended. So it sounds like, yeah, good handle in your due diligence there. We, the, related to the question about like what hormone testing is appropriate, we get this kind of secondary sort of, you know, pushback where it's like, okay, yeah, well, I got my hormone testing panels back and they're all normal, but isn't there an optimal range within normal? Like, don't I need to be striving to get my TSH to a certain level within the normal range? Like what's your like initial response to that? And do you have like a hot take for the, uh, <laughs> for the, for the internet? Well, it would, yeah, it would depend on which one we're talking about. And and to some degree, also the clinical symptoms, you know, so I always tell the patients, you know, we treat people, not numbers, but the numbers can guide us very well. So for the example of, unless we think the person has hypothalamic pituitary disease, despite what everyone on the internet says, TSH is still statistically the best lab assay to look for primary hypothyroidism. Um, in a young adult female, we're a little bit more, uh, I guess, anal about that TSH being perfect um, for fertility and for uh, outcomes because of their reproductive age. Um, but uh, you know, if someone if someone has uh, you know if a middle aged adult person has symptoms that seem thyroid and their TSH is four, um, especially if we you know the we'll, we'll look deeper usually we'll you know we'll look for Hashimoto's. Um, to confirm it, if they have that, then a lot of people are just going to end up treating it, whether whether it's really strongly indicated or not, because that's pretty debatable, you know. And it's not. And when you start splitting those hairs, that's not what causes their obesity. That's the thing. You know what I mean? If they're like the, splitting those hairs, and that, it hasn't even been shown to you know treat people from a TSH of three to one to even have any improvement. There are some nuances with using combination therapy, you know, T3, um, you know, pig thyroid, stuff like that, where they might do a little bit better with weight. And there are some reasons for that. And 
maybe future studies for that to even help in normal people. But, but for the most part, um, yeah, thyroid's not the, not the key factor, um, nor are really any other ones. Um, but go ahead and ask any specific ones and I'll give you my thoughts on them. You know, what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, in the context of most of these endocrine disorders without high suspicion of some sort of, you know, uh, organic dysfunction that is manifested by symptomology, you're not really looking to go any further in your sort of, uh, like, like the studies and assays that you're ordering and even, and like really working up that problem. So without a symptomatic person and without, you know, maybe some laboratory evidence or inconclusive laboratory evidence that you already have, you're not really going to go further down that rabbit hole to try to diagnose somebody with a suboptimal hormone level, um, that, that, would that sum up your kind of take on that? Kind of. Yeah. But I, I mean, really, if you have any specific questions on, cause you know, sure. cause that's the thing. Yes. I mean, people come in saying, oh, my hormones. And it's like, well, which one of your million hormones right, are, right, are you talking about? So, so the, the two big ones that we probably get asked about, well, yeah, m- most of the time, uh, the first one would be testosterone. So, you know, for instance, somebody comes in, yeah. they say, look, you know, I'm a young, I'm in my young, uh, my early twenties and I, my testosterone level is only 300. You know, I know that it's optimal if I'm at a, a thousand. Yeah. My response <laughs> to them. Right. And so that's not true, <laughs> but, um, and that, yeah. And so we get that a lot too. Um, and there's something to it, you know, a 20 year old coming in, uh, you know, with something that's on, you know, maybe just below normal or whatever compared to, you know, a 60 year old. But the, the key with testosterone is that that really is the history, the history and in the exam. So if, if a 22 year old kid guy comes in and says, wow, you know, I've been healthy my whole life. I went through puberty normally. I'm, you know, I was able to grow big muscles and stuff. And, and now I, I don't care about sex. I don't think about it anymore. And my muscles aren't very good. I still try to work out, but they, I keep getting smaller. And, um, I notice a little testicular shrinkage that's, and, and their, their levels are a little low or borderline low and they have like strong symptoms and it's dramatic. That's something that needs to be looked into. Um, but the, the 38 year old who, for whatever reason, randomly got a testosterone level, even though the has normal libido, everything's fine. Um, just had a kid last year. Um, but just, you know, isn't what he was when he was 20. And one assay said that the testosterone was kind of on the low end of normal. That's not pathologically wrong. And and that's not going to cause any significant problems to be what that person would say suboptimal because there's so much variability. There's day-to-day variability and stuff like that. What we want to find is something pathological. Right. And so, so it, yeah, again, without symptoms going further down that diagnostic sort of pathways, well... You, you could argue even getting the, the testosterone level in the first place without oh, evidence, right. you know, either clinical suspicion it, or having symptoms. Exactly. You probably it should, it should not, anyway. yeah, it should not have been drawn, but it often is. <laughs> well, I just want to see where I'm at doc. Like, you know, I just want to see where I'm at. Yeah. That's something that we, that's something that we get all the time is people who, uh, they want to get like a quote unquote full hormone panel right. or something like that, just to see where they're at, even in the absence of symptoms. And it's a really difficult, it can be a difficult conversation to have, yeah. um, to help them understand that. And so, so kind of the question we we're leading towards is like, what do you wish that more people out there understood about kind of hormone testing, uh, in, in general, uh, when it comes to, you know, evaluating for these sorts of things, when is it appropriate? When is it not appropriate? Just to be super explicit for them. <laughs> well, I, yeah. So what would really be nice, and I'm, I'll, if you've talked to Spencer about this at all, he would go crazy about it too. Cause in your realm where, you know, he, he gets this a lot. We really don't want people to just go and get their own hormones checked because 
because you talk about sensitivity, specificity, and um, clinical index of suspicion and when horm- you know, labs are indicated, um, because lab assays, people don't, don't realize, assays are not perfect. There are a lot of errors in them, how, how they're made with different antibodies and sandwiching and, and trying to get these things and then measuring them. And then the reference ranges are not perfect. So there's, there's far too much imperfection to just think that these numbers uh, give a perfect clinical status of somebody without the clinical background or knowing why we're getting it. And then the people are like, so now what are we going to do about it? So they get, you know, so they'll, maybe some of your patients get these uh, whole, you know, panels of hormones that they they somehow bought, um, you know, or convinced some doctor to get, and now nobody knows what to do with them. And then they go down a rabbit hole and start spending tons of money getting MRIs and things like that to look for, you know, hypothalamic pituitary lesions or, uh, or whatnot. So um, it's just not a good idea to just start checking stuff without a good reason. You know, you need to have a good good reason to make it um, statistically uh, beneficial to even look into this stuff. Yeah, that's, I mean, we, we end up talking about these, like the harms, yeah. quote unquote, yeah, exactly. you know, that there there are with inappropriate testing and people are like, well, what do you mean the harms? It's like, well, you know, if you get this borderline or, you know, frank, you know, adverse finding that's not correlated to any symptoms, we don't have any clinical su- submission, uh, uh, you know, clinical suspicion of, of an abnormality, well, you might be subjected to a bunch of additional testing and t- perhaps interventions that could leave you in a worse place than you are right now. And for what right. you were doing fine. Exactly. And that, you and know. we do, we, we get that a lot. Um, so we have to kind of clean up what, uh, you know, what's been done and, and try to help out. But it, but it, you know, worst case scenario, it costs money. Um, or not worst case, best case scenario, it costs sure. money. Worst case scenario, they end up with pituitary surgery that is unneeded or something, you know? Uh, I, I use the example a lot because I'd see, you know, we see a lot of thyroid nodules and thyroid cancers, um, you know, and, and, and I really try to be a minimalist for that stuff because thyroid cancer most of the time is not a very aggressive one. So we're really trying to, as a, as a healthcare system, really trying to pull back on overdiagnosing, but we tend to overdiagnose thyroid cancers and overtreat them. And, and there are harms from that. And uh, not a lot of harm from, you know, even just monitoring some of them. I mean, that's, that's a new uh, consideration is just monitoring some of these small, low risk thyroid cancers. Right. So, so how do you handle the discussions with patients who are requesting like what you would consider to be inappropriate testing? We're looking for maybe some pearls that, that you've either had or, or that you've, you know, passed on to, you know, either fellows or residents rotating with you. Because again, we get this all the time is even, in, even with dealing with people who aren't our patients on the internet, we're, you know, we, we go down the road of like, well, if there's no clinical suspicion and if there's no sort of, uh, you know, symptomology, you know, again, there's risks there, but is there, are there other factors that you try to convey to people seeking this sort of additional testing? So my personal take on that, what I do is I sit down and I try to spend as much time as I can going through, I try to like educate them as best I can in a layman's terms, what the actual data say and why we do the things we do. Um, so for example, thyroid, I'll draw them out the thyroid axis. I'll talk about the T4 and the T3 and, uh, and I'll just basically give them the statistical, not, I don't give like specifics, but like give them, uh, the rationale for why we look into one thing or another. And then I'll, I'll tell them the harms, um, of overdoing it and, and looking too deep into things, um, and finding, you know, things that may or may not be true, false positives, even false negatives, um, 
and uh, you know, and the potential harm that can come from that, along with the cost that sometimes they don't care about if their insurance pays for it. I guess, but right. Well, I guess this leads to like a bigger question. You know, why do you think so many lay people on the internet are discussing these complex topics? Like, what? Where do you think this came from? And I guess we have social media now, right? We have the sort of uh, postmodernism, like influx of you know, you can know all the same things that the professionals know, or at least have access to that to similar information. I mean, what do you think is, has been the impetus for this groundswell of discussion about, quote unquote, hormones? So, well, so specifically for hormones, because hormones are sexy, right? It's the best, uh, <laughs> it's the most important uh, specialty we have. Um, Says the endocrinologist. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but I think, I think because I mean, hormones really are. I mean, you know, everyone wants to get into hormones and stuff because it's sexy and because it's, to some degree, it's true. Everything is controlled by hormones. Um, and that's kind of gets back to the obesity thing. I tell them there, there are tons of hormones involved in this. Um, what we want to know is, is there a pathological uh, issue with this? So I think one is that hormones really do control so much. And for whatever reason, they are kind of sexy. Um, and, and I think maybe people don't realize that taking hormones is essentially taking drugs. Um, and there are risks and benefits to, to hormones just because for whatever reason they've been sold as hormones are, you know, safe or whatever. Um, but then I think there's a bigger problem just in general in medicine and, and, and this is everywhere, not just in our healthcare system in the United States or everywhere else, but there, there are disgruntled people out there because the healthcare systems have failed them. So then that opened a vacuum for, you know, alternative practitioners, um, you know, some quote unquote quackery going on where they're able to take advantage of vulnerable people and sell them on stuff. And then, um, you know, and say, oh yeah, well, Western medicine, they, they blew you off. So we're going to do this. Um, in fact, I, yeah, I mean, like this kind of may, may come up with the adrenal fatigue thing. I know you guys want to ask about, but, um, I just had a perfect example yesterday. This, uh, female just, she's been struggling with stuff. A lot of it's psych stuff, but, um, anxiety and, and trying to be on and off different SSRIs and feeling like garbage. And so I, I can't even remember how this came up, but, but her primary care doctor wanted, you know, so she convinced somebody to check cortisol. You know, she wanted a full thyroid panel, which is fine. And, wanted somebody to check a cortisol. And so they referred her to us. Well, it's hard to get in. <laughs> you know, it takes forever to get in with us because we're so busy. But then she couldn't make her first appointment. And so the appointment got delayed. So then they said, well, why don't you go see these age management age management guys? They do hormones. And that kind of gets into the, but what's a hormone? You know, hormones. Everyone just says hormones. And it's like, oh my God. So she went to these age management guys who God knows what their specialty is. And they did some of that daily diurnal cortisol testing, which by the way, Spencer's experimented with a couple on his own and they're, they were like wildly different because these are not validated tests, by the way. Um, <clears throat> and so then they, what's funny is that they said, oh, your cortisol levels are high, high, by the way, um, you have adrenal fatigue and sold her a supplement. So, and then she came to see me and I spent 60, luckily she was my last patient of the day. I spent 60 minutes with her going over all this stuff. I'm trying to, trying to, you know, talk her down a little bit from it, but you know, cause then the thing I, in the, the thing I shared today was actually a really good article. Cause if, if we just tell people, nope, there's no such thing as adrenal fatigue, get out of here. Well, that's not helping anyone. That's why there's a vacuum. It's kind of like you hear in politics. Well, what do we do with, you know, ISIS? If we leave this one place, there's going to be a vacuum. Ah, you know, 
um, <clears throat> and all this stuff. I mean, and I, I get it. Um, and so I think in medicine, you know, to some degree, we've failed some people. Some people are struggling. And then so these other people uh, go into the vacuum and now they're selling them hopes and dreams and sometimes giving them hormones that make them feel better but aren't fixing the underlying problem. You know, if you give someone steroids because you could say they have adrenal fatigue, well, right. yeah, that person's going to feel good for a while, but that's not treating their underlying problem. And so, ironically, that's not being holistic. As a healthcare community, we got to find a way to be able to spend more time and be a team and be a holistic, uh, give a holistic approach to these patients and, and help them find the real cause. So half the time, I don't even end up doing endocrinology. It's like, you know, I, I try to guide on you know, all their lifestyle medicine things, talk about stress and say, follow up with your psychiatrist. We got to do all these things. Make sure you don't have anemia. Um, a lot of things can cause fatigue. It's like, it's like bad and obesity are the most uh, epitom epitomized holistic problems. Yeah, we, 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 we have to deal with that a lot, especially in the strength and conditioning world, because everybody's all worried about their testosterone. And there's more than more, you know, there's no shortage of shady, you know, men's health clinics that are happy to, you know, inappropriately check a testosterone level at like 5pm and then put you on TRT as, as, as a result, without even doing the subsequent evaluation that's necessary to rule out all the other things that can cause fatigue. And like you said, it's exactly the opposite of a comprehensive approach. And, you know, there's going to be some psychological, if you have, you know, if you've grown up in the lifting culture and you have all these expectations for testosterone is going to make you big and jacked and virile and feel awesome, then sure, you might feel better, you know, for a bit after it gets started. But maybe there was something else, like maybe you had sleep apnea all along that was never diagnosed or treated and you can have bigger problems as a result. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, now that person's going to be on testosterone replacement therapy and they're going to have uh, their shoot their hematocrit through the roof and get a stroke because they didn't treat their sleep apnea. Right. To be clear uh, for the listeners at home and then also to kind of get a little bit more into this adrenal fatigue thing. So when somebody comes in, the reason why you pointed out that her cortisol was high, like that that was a thing, is that the you know hallmark of, you know, adrenal insufficiency would be low cortisol levels in response to, you know, a stressor or just low, you know, having decreased cortisol levels. So, cause even in response to like HIV or like chronic stress or, you know, uh, anything like that, you get high cortisol levels and that's not adrenal fatigue, uh, or in adrenal insufficiency. That's a normal functioning adrenal gland. Um, <laughs> the article, and I'll put this in the show notes as well, cause it's, there's a nice Medscape article. Um, it would, you know, discusses not being dismissive of people's, you know, symptoms and their experience because they ultimately feel unheard and dissatisfied and will lead them to seek out other practitioners who may be inappropriately diagnosing them, inappropriately managing them. When, well, I guess the first question is how many referrals have you gotten for what you would classify like adrenal fatigue brought this person into my clinic? Like that's why they ended up here because the primary care doc couldn't deal with it or, you know, that didn't have the resources. So do, you, do you get referrals on something that smells like it was an adrenal fatigue referral? Well, a lot of times it just says it. <laughs> like, yeah, like oh, I didn't know if they could type it in there. Like the military, you know, wouldn't let you do that. So well, so you, but you can put it in what the, ref, you know, it's not in a diagnosis, but it's, um, right. It's like even the patient might say it. So it'll, it'll oftentimes say it. I'm trying to think, so it happens quite, quite a bit. Um, and it's not just adrenal fatigue, but it might be the thyroid stuff, the, um, you know, even the testosterone stuff. Uh, yesterday, uh, I, I knew this, it was, I knew going in, it was going to be an, somewhat of an issue when I looked at what the person was there for. Oh, I think yesterday, all it said was fatigue and weakness. So I knew kind of, it was like, oh, this isn't 
necessarily endocrine, but they sent to the endocrinologist. Well, then when I started talking to the patient, she started saying, um, well, you know, this and this happened and then my adrenal fatigue would flare up and I, I was going, oh no. Um, and, uh, so then I, Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. Yeah. It's so, just, that's okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I try so hard not to just blow it off, but I'm sure my face sometimes gives it away. But, um, <clears throat> but then I get the history out of her and she's the one who told me how she was, you know, all her problems leading up to, and she was a very healthy looking person, by the way, um, leading up to all this stuff. And, uh, and then it turned out that when she went to these age management guys and they did this stuff, they actually, said something about cortisol excess. And that's really why the primary care doctor said, Hey, you got to, you do have to keep this, um, endocrine appointment. Um, but, but yet the, the age management people told her it was adrenal fatigue and sold her some supplement that had a bunch of stuff in it that may hopefully isn't dangerous, but you know, so that's, yeah, so we get that a lot. Yeah, we do. We get those a lot actually. Well, that, that actually uh, speaks to, you know, like the supplements that are generally used for this, you know, diagnosed adrenal fatigue, uh, at these other clinics either have steroids in them or thyroid hormone or some other, you know, pharmaceutically active substance. It's not like they're benign right. Right. And they, supplements. And they don't so, always say it like, you know, hers yesterday had the typical stuff like ashwagandha and, and whatnot. Um, but who knows? That's the thing. If that's one of the ones that got tested and actually has some steroid in it, it but it doesn't say because it's not regulated, uh, you know, that's a problem. So do you think that that's, you know, that it's harmful? Like, do you think that this is a big enough problem to like suggest that these, the alternative practitioners and then the subsequent recommendation to take these supplements was actually harmful to the population at large? Yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah. What I, to I do mean, about because, it? I don't know. <laughs> but I do. Yeah. It's a problem. Yeah, it is. a It's a significant problem. And it, yeah, it gives, you know, false hope. It, it leads people in the wrong direction. It's kind of like the anti-vaxxing stuff. And, and, um, Oof. you know, and I, and I'm, I, I, you know, and yeah, and it, there's, there's weird political things with it. And, and I tend to be, you know, I tend to vote kind of libertarian and uh, whatnot, but I'm also open to where there may need to be intervention. And I don't want to turn political because I don't know, I don't have the answers, but, um, you know, at what point does, and who is going to do something about harm that's being done to people, you know, for quasi profit or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer, right. but I know it's a problem. Well, there's been this like push toward, you know, especially again in the, in the lay sort of social media um, sphere where it's like, you know, ha take this dietary supplement or eat these certain kind of foods and or avoid these certain kind of foods in order to boost your testosterone or improve insulin sensitivity or as to as far reaching things as like cycling different types of seeds in order to improve your menstrual cycle. Uh, what I mean, it gets really or like avoiding certain types of deodorant because of their effect on reproductive hormones. Yeah. Well, I tell you, there's there are there's there there are uh, the endocrine society. Um, if you care to check out their stuff on endocrine disrupting chemicals, they're on kind of a mission to try to figure out this endocrine disrupting chemical issue. There there's more than meets the eye there. Um, again, I don't know what to do about it necessarily, but. There's, there's something to that. And that's the other thing. So a lot of what these alternative people do, they, they take data or, um, issues that actually have something to them. And then they go to the extreme and say, Oh, this is how it is. So they'll, they'll find some random study that says something about something. And then boom, that's like the best evidence in the world for whatever they're trying to do. And it's like, Whoa, hold on. There's something to that, but we don't have a good answer. Um, let's 
step back and think about it a little bit. But um, but anyways, that's yeah. That I mean, my my well, my overall take on on this right now is that we we just don't have enough evidence that says suggests that you can reliably make a specific dietary change or take a specific over the counter dietary supplement or again like use certain types of deodorant to you know ultimately improve your thyroid function or your growth hormone level you know something all these things it's it's there's a kernel or a nugget of truth in there somewhere right, exactly we don't yep. we don't, we just don't have the validated data yet yeah and, to really and, say yeah, I'll, and I'll I'll talk to I'll just go through that with patients sometimes, and I'll I'll talk about the iodine thing, why we iodize our salt, because I'll tell you I've had patients who went all organic vegan and quit using iodized salt, and they actually made themselves iodine deficient hypothyroidism, like in other countries. Oh, no. So that I mean that <laughs> that can happen, um, and uh, you know, and I'll, I'll talk about selenium, and I'll talk about the data of selenium supplementation in certain countries like China where they might be deficient, and uh, and it makes their antibodies go down, and it. And there may be some data for like Graves and the Graves um, orbitopathy, and it may help with some of that. But again, uh, it's it's unclear. Um, it's too unclear to tell people to supplement with something like selenium because of the data. Um, but you know, it's it, there's something to it, and so I usually end up just talking about diet and sit, tell them to eat Brazil nuts. But um, right and. Yeah. And, and, but then from, and then I talk about, well, and then there's the gluten thing. So I wrote an article a few years back because everyone thought gluten was destroying thyroids. And it was like, well, what, what is this all about? And, you know, it gets into the, you know, the Hashimoto's, the autoimmune diseases and the increased risk of celiac. And, and there is some little, uh, component of that. But then, you know, in most people, if they, if they really do a dietary improvement overall and they go to more of a whole foods, high, you know, plant-based, lean meats, Mediterranean. That's always what I push to like every patient. If they make those types of dietary improvements, they always end up feeling better. So it's, it's sort of like, a, um, what do you call it? regression to the mean? So shifting gears, uh, just a little bit, we were ta- we've been talking mostly about the general population and health and kind of best endocrinology practices within that sort of realm. Let's move over to like athletics. Do you feel like offhand that there are any significant differences as far as managing, you know, routine hormonal investigation or quote unquote optimizing hormonal function in athletes compared to the general population? Um, no, not really. Um, I, I think that they, so, so interestingly, they may high level athletes or people who take really good care of themselves, they may actually, um, give kind of a false sense of normal even if they do have problems. So, so you do have to be a little bit more aware if they have changes that are, are different for them. Uh, for example, uh, Cushing's disease, like real Cushing syndrome, Cushing's disease patients, someone who's always eating well and exercising, they've been doing it their whole lives and look really healthy, but suddenly start to suffer like some very slight uh, symptoms that could be that, you could miss them easily because they take such good care of themselves. They don't look like the Cushing patient that's walking around. Um, whereas like, you know, half of our general population, you could argue might have Cushing's, you know what I mean? Um, same with, um, like real hypogonadism or, you know, growth hormone deficiency or pituitary problems. Um, people who, who, you know, high level athletes who are just, they look great, they're healthy. Um, but they, you know, maybe suddenly aren't 
their normal selves, they may be someone you got to look a little bit deeper because they might have, you know, maybe they have hypothyroidism. Um, in fact, I'm sure uh, I'm not throwing Spencer under the bus because I guarantee he's talked about this. Uh, you know, he was just kind of struggling at some point. I, I think he was in medical school and he was diagnosed with Hashimoto's and he had legit primary hypothyroidism. But but nobody else would have said, oh, my God, that guy has hypothyroidism because he's he's jacked and ripped and looks good. And uh, but he had he had some vague symptoms. So you do have to be careful, um, I think, of those people to uh, not blow off slight changes in in that. Um, so I think that's important. I don't know if that's exactly what you're asking. Yeah, that, no, that's good info. That's a that's a good pearl. Well, I think that's just reflecting what you're describing earlier in terms of when they're, you know, it, it's kind of uh, testing based on your clinical suspicion. And, and then in certain populations that might be where it might be a little more subtle, you kind of have to adjust your your frame of reference a little bit accordingly. Um, whereas it doesn't necessarily mean that athletes, because by virtue of their athleticism, require a bunch of routine hormone testing in order to, quote unquote, optimize it if they don't have any symptoms or any problems going on. One of the really kind of common questions that we get, particularly again from a, a athletic or you know sports sort of side of this, has to do with testosterone levels. And I guess the first question I have is, why do you think that testosterone level or you know testosterone in general has gotten such a you know big sort of focus in athletics? Do you have any sense of like why that has I, come to be? Well, I th I think uh, you know one again because the hormone thing is sexy. Now I, I don't have my history book in front of me, but as I recall, back in whenever it was, was it the '60s or maybe before that when um, when testosterone became more available uh, because you know the medical research establishment you know, figured it out, came up with, you know, how to reproduce the hormones and stuff, as I recall. Um, and then that's when suddenly they realized, oh, well, we can use this to, at super physiologic levels to, you know, get cows bigger and get our athletes bigger and stronger and faster and that sort of thing. And I think that's, you know, so that kind of took off. And I mean, and it's, uh, it's one of the few ergogenic aids that has pretty dramatic benefits uh, in those ways. Um, despite the potential harms. So I, I, I think that's why, and I don't, I don't know how they became so readily available. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. Which, you know, it's funny because I, I don't know if you guys get this, but you know, people are always assume that like Spencer and I, um, know how, know about like, uh, black market steroids and, and all this stuff. And, and it's like, you know, it's funny. Cause like I just prescribe it. I don't, I honest to God, I mean, people think I use it, but I don't. And if I did, I'd have to use like androgel or something. Cause it's like, I don't know, sure. <laughs> like, I don't know where they, where people are getting these from. And he just told me a story about how he had some patients who actually were prescribed, um, like Winstrol <laughs> and Deca, oh, yeah. which are like, yeah. it's like, what the hell? I don't even know how that's possible. I, I don't think that's, we can't get those from a pharmacy. So I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, so it's, it's crazy. And so I, I don't know. I don't know that I have a good answer for you other than, um, you know, I think it's been shown that, uh, you know, for better or worse, they do work for what people are trying to do and use them for, um, you know, pro bodybuilders to athletes to, um, and that's why they're illegal. That's why it's illegal because it's, uh, you know, it's cheating in my opinion. Um, but you know, a lot of guys just go to the gym and, and he was just telling me today how he hears a lot from patients who are just kind of, you know, nobody would even suspect them of, of doing it, but they're doing it. Right. Yeah. It's something like, like 75% of all anabolic steroid use is done by recreational sort of 
athletes and body, you know, bodybuilders, they're not like, they don't compete. Um, it's, I, I think the problem is, you know, there's been such a, I guess, uh, the, yeah, in high level performance, taking supra physiological doses of testosterone has definitely been associated with an ergogenic benefit, you know, in gain. And then people say, well, so if that's the case, then the higher my endogenous testosterone levels, the better which doesn't necessarily right. correlate. So you get this sort of like, it, yeah, it doesn't. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Which is what we see in sport all the time, you know, within a normal physiological range, we don't see changes in lean body mass levels or muscle fiber type or even performance, but that all goes out the window once exogenous testosterone is introduced into the equation, but people don't go that next step. And so then they're like, well, look, doc, you're telling me that I'm fine with this level of mm. 300 nanograms per deciliter, but I need to be a thousand because right. more is better. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. So in that, in that way, then I, you know, I'll try to explain the day-to-day variability and the different things in life that can affect it. So, you know, if we started looking at, um, you know, some of the most jacked, uh, um, amateur or, you know, drug-free bodybuilders, natural bodybuilders, and, and say in, you know, like in our case, wrestlers. So think about wrestlers, you know, people in normal life would might think, oh my God, they must be they're, they're huge or they're muscular and maybe they're taking steroids or something. But, uh, um, but then if you check like while they're cutting weight and in the middle of season, it's probably in the tank, yeah. you know, and because that's what happens is that stress induced, you know, kind of a, a functional hypogonadism, but obviously it's still functioning to some degree. Now, now could you argue that, well, maybe, maybe supplementing that person would be an ergogenic aid? Well, probably, but that's why it's illegal. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there was some decent data from the 2012 Olympic Games in London on male competitors suggesting that uh, a quarter of that cohort who were actually competing in the Olympic Games had low, had below the reference range levels. Oh, of, really? That's, yeah, 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 that's great. See, because that's true. Because that's great. That hard, you, you get it because it's, 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 that just drives me crazy because yeah, it, the way the body functions, it's gonna, all that stuff can go low. I mean, that's, it's, it's almost like a sick thyroid thing. Um, the, you know, the people who go really, really, really low carb or just even really low calorie, um, kind of suppress all that stuff. And then they think that's a problem. And it's like, well, actually that's normal. Yeah. Um, there's not a pathology. Um, and, and I don't know, I don't think we have an answer as to, well, would it be better to replace it? That's what I was, I hinted yep. at something earlier that, you know, there is research on, you know, giving T3 um, to people who have lost a lot of weight and have that um, sort of metabolic adaptation that has a slower metabolism. And part of that is the thyroid axis that goes down a little bit. Sure. Um, but it's like, we're know, not sure what the clinical significance right, is. Right, exactly. So are we going to do more harm than benefit? Is that, is that, you know, but it'll be studied and, and, you know, there's something, again, there's something to it, but not something we should all just jump to because, you know, do no harm first. Right. And the, the last question we have here is kind of, it's probably, this is a zebra, you know, by definition, but uh, have you seen any patients, uh, you know, the fe- a female patient, pr- uh, particularly one who might be involved in athletics, who's got congenital adrenal hyperplasia? Uh, oh yeah, we get, yeah. I mean, I definitely have patients with congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Um, I yeah. don't, oh boy, I don't remember if I've had any who were competing though, but there is, again, there is something to that. Um, yeah. Some of yeah, them. they're overrepresented in, in sports yeah. for sure. Yeah. I think the, so, the latest data set is like yeah. that the normal there there's 140 times as great a prevalence at elite level athletics at the international yeah. level compared to the gen pop uh 
And I, I, yeah, I guess I was just more curious, like what's your take on that? And then if you've had any experience. (laughs) So yeah, my take on that is I think that's, (laughs) that's about right. I, I, you know, I mean, that makes sense. That does make some physiological sense. So when we start talking about, you know, females using, you know, anabolic steroids, I mean, there's a reason that it works for them. Again, harms, in my opinion, would outweigh benefits. And there's a reason that we treat those patients with congenital adrenal hyperplasia so they don't have the androgenism uh, necessarily. But in those subtle levels, you know what? That's their genetics. And I, and I, don't, I don't have a good answer for you on my opinion on the, the, the athletics of it because that's a hard thing to, to try to debate. Um, I think that's how they were born. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, I do a lot of transgender medicine too. And, and now suddenly, uh, there have been, uh, transgender, let's see what it would be. Transgender females have won events that were, you know, biological males that are now (laughs) transgender females. And then, and then there's the opposite and I, it gets very confusing and, you know, there are political issues and, um, fairness issues. Um, but I will tell you that I've had a lot of congenital adrenal hyperplasia patients. I don't recall any of them being athletes, but but you're right. The statistics do support that. Um, and I, I don't have a great answer as to my thoughts on it or opinions on it, but it, it is what it is. I, yeah, I don't know what to say about it really, to be honest, but it makes sense. It does. I'll ask, well, we're here to ask the hard questions. So, and, and I, I, might, I might try to force you into an opinion. If you don't have one, it's fine. This is like a, a pet, a pet, uh, interest of mine. So like the current IOC guidelines, so the in, uh, International Olympic Committee's guidelines since 2015 on male to female transgender athletes has been that you have to declare you, that you're a female and you can't change that within four years. And then a year prior to competing, you have to have documentation that you've been hormonally suppressed down to a level. It's 288 nanograms per deciliter. So you have to have like documentation and then you'll, you have to be tested during while you're still eligible to compete that you never have gotten above that. The existing data set appears to show that the amount of lean body mass that someone carried prior to transitioning tends to decrease to a level of a cisgendered female. So a male to female transgendered athlete now would have similar lean body mass levels as if they were a cisgendered female. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, you know, just from a clinical standpoint, I don't know that data that you're talking about. I, I'm skeptical though. So, so here's, here's my thought on that. And, and this, I, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure that this whole thing is fair, to be honest. So, um, and I'm all about treating my transgender patients. They're some of the best patients I have. They're very, thought, uh, you know, appreciative in it, of everything, um, and so I love doing it. Uh, however, if you guys or I, de- so what did you say the rules are? Did you have to declare four years before? So not four years before, but like if I de- so if I wanted to do this right, I have I would have to declare now that I am uh, going to be a female athlete, and I can't change that in the next four years. Now, a year prior to my to entering competition, I have to have documentation that I've been hormonally suppressed to that 288 nanograms per deciliter level before I could compete in my first event. Yeah. So here's here's my my thought on that. So let's say, you know, so you guys know, um, you know, a little bit about my wrestling career. Um, I can still I can still get in there and, and beat a lot of guys up and probably could hang in there with you know I can still hang with college guys, right? Sure. What if I decided right now that Okay, I'm going to become female. I appropriately get suppressed. I do all the stuff I'm supposed to do. I'm on my estrogen. And then so you're telling me I can compete at the next Olympics if I can beat up all the girls. Yeah, theoretically. So that's I guess that's my issue. And I, I, I don't see losing all my muscle and the, what I've built up over all these years or over, actually over all my adolescent years. I'm obviously, I'm, 
on the downhill slope now <laughs> as I age. Don't but, say um, that. Don't say that. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? I, I think there's more. I, I just think there's more to it. And I, again, I, I'm not going to pretend I'm the expert in that specific part of it. But just knowing about transgender medicine and doing it, I, I, I have some issues with that because I've seen it. I've seen now, you know, some, you know, guys, uh, male to females winning the, the, girls state championships, um, in high school and stuff. And I'm just thinking, well, you know, that, that biological male was building up, um, after he went through puberty all those years and, and he's established himself pretty well. So, you know, if there are good data that say, well, the lean body mass is the same, I don't know, but there's more to it than that. I think. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's three pretty decent data sets on this and, and I, this is far from an open shut case. I mean, for me, it's just based on, you know, what we have right now, it seems like that the overlap from a male to female, you know, so someone who's previously a biological male, uh, that the overlap in their lean body mass levels, like line up nearly exactly with cisgendered females after they've transitioned for a year. Now that's only three data sets. And, you know, that definitely doesn't have a good amount of elite level athletes in that data set. So it'd be difficult to like really right. draw and that, well, from that. Right. And that's the thing. Think about the selection bias potential. Sure. hundred uh, percent. The bigger issue I have with this is that, you know, at the high school level, for instance, they're not following the IOC rules. So you do have, I mean, theoretically, you could have a, a someone who's born biologically XY, who's identified as a male their entire life up until their senior year, declare that they're female and go compete. Because there's no hormonal suppression rules. There's no sort of gender like, you know, you have to declare this and it has to be in place for a certain amount of time before you compete. So it's a it's a contentious topic. People on the Internet have been very uh, outspoken about this. I just I was curious to take, get your take on it as an endocrinologist. Yeah, it's, it's a tough thing. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, as a doctor, like I said, I am I am all about trying to help people. And, and I love my transgender patients. But kind of as an athlete, I find issue with that with some of these some of these takes. Sure. I definitely do. Well, again, I don't have a great answer, but I, I definitely think there's a problem. <laughs> well, that's uh, I appreciate you. Uh, you giving us your opinion on that. Uh, Carl Nadolsky, you've been You've been great, man. Uh, where can people find out more stuff that you've published previously or con- connect with you on the internet? Uh, do you have a website? Just give people your whole, your whole spiel. Yeah, sure. I have, um, you know, I use a, a Facebook page, Dr. Carl Nadelsky. Um, it also has an Instagram uh, thing at Dr. Carl Nadelsky. And then um, uh, our website that I, I don't keep up too much with um, is uh, www.docswholift.com. Um, but we're always looking for anybody who wants to be, uh, you know, guest um, bloggers or anything else or um, put their feature on there, or, um, you know, provide recipes for patients or anything like that. Very cool. Very cool. Austin, any part, any parting shots? No parting shots. Just uh, thanks for joining us, Carl. It's cool talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. All right, thanks for tuning in to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We'll be back next week with a question and answer session from San Antonio, Texas. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, please head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review. That really helps us out. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in. See you.